0: Hello, this is Andrew Levy, and this is one of my series of occasional podcasts where I talk about matters of interest, hopefully, to the labour community, but also to a much broader area uh, of people in all sorts of other occupations. Today, I'm going to have uh, perhaps a little bit of a, uh, I don't know, I don't want to say um, depressing or discouraging conversation, but I'm frequently asked You know, if I'm on television or commenting or or whatever the case may be, um, what do we need to do to deal with unemployment? How do we create jobs? And, you know, in reality, uh, it's a very, very difficult question to answer. And it's not an easy question to answer uh, in, in sound bites. It really requires a great deal of thought. And in fact, I've been giving it a great deal of thought on and off, Um, And I'm I'm about to start writing, and I'm going to uh, write a little paper, which is going to be entitled Fixing South Africa's Broken Labour Market. I did one once before, about 12 or 13 years ago, and I'm happy to say that a lot of the things I put in there have taken place, albeit not as strongly as I would have liked, but nevertheless, um, they're there. But we still have the problem. So let's start off by discussing the extent of that. Our unemployment problem has now reached levels uh, which are almost unthinkable. You know, it's like the first motor cars. No person can live at the speed of 15 or 20 miles an hour. It just can't be done. No society can live with the levels of unemployment that we have. And we know that the narrow definition, come COVID, jumped 2% in one quarter. Well, that's unheard of, but yes, it was an economic shock. But more importantly, if we look at the broad definition as well as the narrow definition, and we add the two together, which is what we need to do to get some real idea of what unemployment is really like in South Africa, uh, we're actually looking at a figure of probably 65, 68 or even 70 percent right now. Now, that is just almost incomprehensible, particularly if you're a labour economist, to think of a society that has that level of unemployment. And the question is, how do you turn it around? Well, I've given it a great deal of thought. I mean, the answer in uh, overall terms is very easy. We need to grow this economy um, at a positive rate, and and, and not necessarily a shoot all the lights out rate, but a strong positive four to five, maybe five and a half percent for a decade and a half. That's what we need to do. But there is absolutely no prospect, no prospect whatsoever of that happening until we go through a program of radical labor market reform. So I'm going to outline what I think needs to be done. I'm going to speak broadly. I'm not going to go into details, but of course, details can be worked out. But we're going to be left with the biggest question of all. And that is if these measures are held to be correct, then does government have the will to accept that this is the way to go? And if they do, have they got the power to see these reforms through? That's a question I can't answer. So let's turn to the radical labour market reform and my argument, my rationale, the wares I'm setting out in my stall, and I hope to sell to you, is that until such time as we reform our labour market, we are never going to get the growth which we need to deal with unemployment. That is the first comment. The second comment is that No matter what government says about their job creation program, it will not create jobs. If we look at the number of job creation programs and the promises we've had over the last decade or more, um, we should be importing labor uh, by the plane load. The simple proposition is this, and this is my second uh, foundation for what I have to say, is that governments do not create jobs. Employers create jobs. All that government can do is to create an environment in which employers wish to create jobs. And do we have that environment right now? I leave it for you to judge. So, where does our radical labor market reform begin? The first thing is we need to say goodbye to bargaining councils, scrap them in their entirety and scrap the automatic extension of wages to employers who are not party. And when I say scrap them, leave them there, but let it happen on a totally voluntary basis. Those who want to bargain that way, good luck. But if you don't want to, let's stop operating what is effectively a wage-fixing cartel and enforcing these, entrenching the power of unions to regulate conditions where they have no membership and will probably never have membership, allowing the large employers to set wage levels that they are quite comfortable with, but the small employer cannot do. And then finally, stop harassing small employers whom we all know are the ones who create jobs with the huge number of standards and and arcane and obscure uh, obligations that fall on an employer in terms of some of these agreements. Now hear me, I'm not saying either that those who want it can't do it, nor am I saying that it's got to be a free-for-all and labor must not be protected. I'm not saying that at all. I'm simply saying that a system which entrenches unions as one of the major determinants of wage levels, where they have no membership artificially enhances their power. And the fact that the bargaining takes place at that level means that it's absolutely impossible to link wages with productivity or efficiency, because that is something that happens and is unique to each and every individual plant. And you can't aggregated across an economy and have any meaningful discussion about it at a centralized level. I do realize that there are huge vested interests supporting the Bargaining Council system, employers, unions, all of the employees in the Bargaining Council, but until they go, our labor market will remain particularly, particularly inflexible in that area. Now, the second area we need to have some radical reform is in the area of strike law and practice. And let's start with strike law. And we all know the difficulties that occur in strikes, how they turn into violence, how people get killed, how assets get destroyed. And it it really is completely symbolic of a dysfunctional system. So how much more evidence do we need that this thing is not working? The first thing we've got to do is we've got to bring the strike ballot in, in a completely unequivocal and effective way. You know that it was put into the the recent amendments to the LRA, but it was struck down because it was uh, um, incorrectly drawn. And it was struck down on legal principles. So the drafters uh, did not do a proper job of drafting. Although I must say the cynic in me says, well, maybe it was an own goal because it suited them. But let's not go into conspiracy theories. So that is the first thing. We need to return to some kind of court enforced or even statutory duty to bargain in good faith. Now, the code of good practice on collective bargaining was a step in the right direction, and I understand all the reasons why it was made a code and not made part of the law. Uh, And those are good reasons. But nevertheless, we are in the middle of a crisis, and we've simply got to say, perhaps good reasons need to be overwritten for a period of time. That needs to be made binding. It needs to be made binding far sooner we need to have a situation where there are penalties for unions that deliberately uh, and demonstrably, so this must be able to be proved to the satisfaction of a court of law, that they have unreasonably uh, incited or urged or driven uh, a strike or been obdurate to a settlement with their bad faith And we end up with a situation where there is fire and flame and damage and, heaven forbid, death, there need to be penalties. So I'm proposing a series of graduated fines, swinging fines. We're talking about very, very serious fines for that sort of behavior, for ignoring court orders, ultimately leading to deregistration. Yes, I know that there are constitutional values at stake here, but remember the Constitution does contain the limitations clause where rights may be limited, where it's reasonably necessary in a law of general application in a democracy, uh, and there's some other conditions we don't need to go in here, but the mechanism exists. And then still on this area, because it's a great trigger of the unlawful strikes at the moment is we need some guidance around the problem of union competition. Right now, it's a free-for-all. And um, if nothing else, the unions themselves ought to adopt a code of conduct um, such as there was in the UK in the 70s, they may still be in position. They were called the Bridlington Rules, simply because they were agreed at a congress at uh, uh, the Yorkshire um, seaside resort of Bridlington, um, and those were always used to deal with interunion competition. And then we need to look at the CCMA and its impact on the individual decision should I employ this person or not? And the first thing I'm going to suggest is that we need to agree a period during which the employee may never have access to the CCMA, and that access to the CCMA is a right which is earned with the length of service. Now, once again, you may be shocked at this because it's it's hard to... Uh, Uh, keep them down on the farm after you've seen Paris, as the old song says. Um, But, you know, I recall very well when I worked in the UK at that stage, there was a two-year period where you could not refer an unfair dismissal dispute because you had to earn it with service. Now, I'm not suggesting we go two years. The UK still has one year. And I think that we need to couple this one year um, with a very firm probation period, which has a lot of, I don't want to say regulations, but guidelines around it, which will enable employers to appoint people um, without any obligation that this could become a permanent employee on a situation where minimum wage legislation does not apply and a situation where there is no recourse to the CCMA and the contract may be terminated within this time for good reason, misconduct, operational requirement, incapacity, or for serious breach of contract. Now, once again, I know this does sound really, really radical, and it is compared to what we have, but we've got to get this economy going, and we've got to remember that it's the employer who will do this. We need to have a vigorous means of pre-screening of cases so that the merits can be looked at by competent people and ones that are clearly vexatious and have no prospects are rejected. We also need to consider the possibility, as the Brits have done recently, of putting in the requirement that you want to refer a case, you've got to make a deposit, maybe only 200 rand. And I understand all of the difficulties that go with your meaning or your saying that go with, well, you can only afford justice if you've got 200 rand. Well, I mean, that's obviously a a worrisome thing. But of course, this could be a very, very useful recruiting tool for trade unions. And then finally, we need the uh, CCMA to pursue an active and a vigorous policy of awarding costs where... The application has no merit whatsoever, where the behavior of the employee after the dismissal has been completely antithetical and opposed to any form of settlement, and finally where the whole litigation is clearly vexatious. So that's what we need to do. And that facility exists already in the LRA. It's just that as a matter of policy, it is never applied. And this goes back a long way. And then finally, as part of this, I'm going to suggest uh, we need to constantly improve the training of our commissioners, but that we also have a three strikes and you're out policy. Now, maybe it's four strikes and you're out, or any number you want. But in reality, if a commissioner is repeatedly reviewed in the Labour Court or the Labour Appeal Court, and repeatedly we find, according to the Sedumo test, that this is not a decision that a rational decision-maker could have come to, then we've got to bring an end to their commissioning. Now, once again, I know that this is radical, but that's what we need, because the situation we face is the door that will unlock growth And it is only growth that will resolve unemployment. And then finally, we need government to come to the party as well and stop spending money on their job creation schemes. If you accept my proposition, you know that that will not deliver sustainable, secure jobs. Let them rather put this money, this expenditure, into tax abatements, tax easing, tax incentives for employers who create jobs because right now there is no incentive whatsoever. So, those are the things we need to do. They really are, as I've said repeatedly, a far cry from where we are right now. But we've simply got to say, is this a disease which is curable without radical surgery? And in my view, no. Once it goes out of the hands of commentators like myself, Um, It then becomes a political issue. Uh, Will government ideologically accept the prescription? And will they implement and take the medicine? That is a question I cannot answer. So we'll have to wait and see. Thank you very much again for listening. I hope you found some food for thought in uh, today's podcast. And, And obviously, it is a subject of great concern to all of us. So no doubt, we'll return to it time and time again. I just want to say thank you. This is Andrew Levy, and you can get hold of me uh, on my uh, email, andrew at andrewlevy.co.za, and uh, that's all lowercase, and the Andrew Levy is one word, A-N-D-R-E-W, Levy is spelt L-E-V-Y, and of course you should look at our website from time to time, uh, Levy because you will find that there are not only a a large back number of uh, podcasts, which are all uh, up to date and of value, but also um, there's all sorts of other interesting information and outline of our services and and what we do. And if you do need to speak to me urgently, well, send me a WhatsApp on 0836505001, and I would. Not only love to hear from you, I'll always get back to you. So, thanks very much indeed. You've been listening to another production from Solid Gold Podcasts.